We're working our way in the Gospel of John to a section that is extremely important. Uh, we looked uh, last week at uh, John chapter 8. Uh, remember, we talked about the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and she was thrust, thrust down, down there uh, in front of Jesus the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. and. Uh, Jesus has some amazing interaction with her. And then after that, we looked, last, last week we looked at uh, the fact that the people were just totally divided over what was going on with this rabbi from Galilee. And, and they were going, well, is he the Messiah? I don't know. He's from Galilee. I thought the Messiah was coming from Bethlehem and Judea and all, or Judah and all that. And, and you know, they, there's this whole interaction that goes, it kind of, it, it's, I, when I read this chapter, it's like looking at, I mean, because you have Jesus over here and he'll make a statement and then the religious leaders or the people, one or the other, will make a statement here. And it's like they lob this thing back and forth and back and forth. And, and through it, there is a great amount of truth revealed. So much so that Jesus identifies it in verse 32 and says, I am giving you the truth, I'm paraphrasing, and the truth will set you free. And, and so I got to look at it, all of this, and, and like I said, we're working our way towards verse 32 this morning because that's sort of the culmination of this conversation, this part of the conversation that he's having with the religious leaders and the people, and got to thinking about truth. And why is it that in our culture, in our society, in our world, that truth is so hotly debated? I mean, sometimes where I have to turn off Fox News <laughs> because I don't want to turn on the other channels because of the whole, and, and I look at, I look out at academia, I look at our culture, I look, you ask a kid, you ask an average high school or college age young person, give me a definition of truth. And their definition most often is, well, or I mean, give me your definition of freedom. And, and because the truth will set you free, well, what's your definition of freedom? And your definition of freedom is, well, I can do anything I want. That's not freedom. The freedom that Christ gives us is a freedom within a secure relationship. It's like I have a buddy that uh, was an educator. He was in education for years and, and he would tell his students, talking about freedom. Yeah, we are free. We're a free society, but that doesn't give you the right to stand up and yell fire in a crowded theater. You just don't do that. You, you're not free to do that. You're not free to go and break laws. You're not free to go and do as you wish. And so the freedom that we have in Christ, and we'll look at that more next week as we go forward, because we're going to be looking at freedom, um, is not so much uh, that we're just free to do anything we want willy-nilly. It's freedom within a secure relationship. If you're familiar with the word autonomy, very often businesses use autonomy. Uh, in other words, I worked in corporate management for a period of time, and, uh, and I ran the whole part of the state I was responsible for in the corporation I worked for. I was, 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 in, in, was an operations manager, and I had a, a pretty sizable territory that went in several states, actually. But I was free to run that the way I was, uh, I was taught to run it, the way I was trained to run it. But that didn't mean I wasn't accountable to my boss. I was autonomous 
and that I was free to do what I was doing, but I was also accountable. And the same thing, the freedom that we have in Christ, again, we'll get into it in a lot more detail next week, is it's freedom within a secure relationship. So today I want to focus on the truth part of John 8:32 because he says, I will give you the truth. I'm speaking you the truth. And this is after he tells the guys three times, if you don't believe me, if you don't understand that I'm speaking truth to you, you'll die in your sins. So is it important that we understand what truth is? Kinda, yeah. It's extremely important. This is pivotally important. Life and death, eternity in, with, in the Lord's presence or in hell depends on it. I mean, these are very, very weighty issues. So what happens with truth out there in the world? We live in what's called a postmodern society. Postmodernism stinks. Oh, and that's a theological word. Um, <laughs> but it, it does. It, it, it's the whole philosophical thought behind postmodernism is truth has now become subjective. And I'm going to give you quite a bit of detail on what it is to look at subjective truth and objective truth. Now, because, and I use the word subjective truth loosely because it often isn't truth at all. It, it's, it's a variation of the truth that could sound good, but it's not true. Subjective, and, and think about it in these terms. As we look at this, we're going to look at subjective and objective in detail here. And I think you'll probably see why people come up with some of the goofy conclusions that they come up with. And, and when you look at subjective truth, think of subject, okay? It's a subject. It's not an object. If you think of objective truth, think of an object. And we're going to look at that as we go. I'm going to read something to you here. Postmodern philosophy emphasizes the construction of truth. Funny, I thought truth was absolute. No, it emphasizes constructing a truth. And so coming out of the gate, you know, my antennas go up and I think, okay, that's weird. And it also it emphasizes the construction of your worldview. And really what it amounts to is it appeals to that part of our base nature, that Adamic, fallen, sinful nature, the flesh is what the Bible calls it, that says that I'm the star of my own movie, that everything revolves around me. It's very me-centered. And, and instead of having my life rooted in the truth about things as they are, it's rooted in truth about things of which I have an opinion or I have an emotional affinity for or whatever. Postmodern philosophy emphasizes the construction of truth. It emphasizes the construction of worldviews. Many postmodernists appear to deny that an objective reality exists, that, that it actually exists. And, and deny that there are objective moral values. Why do you think our culture has go, gone so far in, in, in just in the toilet? There's no foundation, there's no standard for truth. Because when, it's, when I set my own standard, you guys have heard me say it before, in, with God, the standard's fixed. But with man, when we want to set our own standard, we're in trouble. And we might even think, well, I'm a good moral person. And I give it the office. I support, you know, this charity or that, all of that. But then when it comes time, when my life gets pressed in on some, in some way, and I need to change that standard, guess where it's going to go? Almost without fail, it goes lower. 
well, to accommodate this particular thing or that particular thing, I'm going to lower my standard so that I can achieve that or so I can get a hold of that thing that I want. And, and the Bible says you're doing that because you want to consume it on your lust. That's a whole different deal. Generally, objectivity means the state or quality, and listen to this, Objectivity means the state or quality of being true even outside a subject's individual biases, interpretations, feelings, and imaginings. Okay? Uh, Let me give you a good example from the Bible about uh, subjective truth or subjective reality versus objective reality. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, he's standing there at Caesarea Philippi, uh, base of Mount Hermon, And he's talking to his guys. He says, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say, opinion, John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they give him kind of a laundry list here of their opinions about what other people are saying about who he is. That's subjective. uh, Can you see that it's a subjective reality? It's a subjective truth here. It's not true, and I, again, I, when I use that term, don't think I'm trying to push that home as being true. To them, to those people who are relying on their opinions, relying on their emotions, relying on their biases, that's true. For them, it's true. Oh, he's got to be John the Baptist. Oh, he's got to be Moses. He's got to be, you know, one of the prophets. And then Jesus goes on, he says to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers and said, You're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's an objective reality. Peter had opportunity to spend a lot of time with Jesus. He had weighed the evidence and he had come to the conclusion, rightfully so, that what was true about this guy standing there saying, who do you say that I am? Is that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. He is the sent one. He is the anointed one of God. Come to Israel, as has been prophesied in years past, and and that He's the son of the living God. Uh, I always love that because there they are. They're in, in, there are all these false God statues and temples all around them. And he says, you're the son of the living God. Not like these dead gods all around. At any rate, this is just a good example. Subjective, well, you're a prophet. You're John the Baptist. You're this, you're that. And people come up with all kinds of ideas, don't they, about who God is. But there's only one objective reality of who God is. And so I'm going to look at some slides here. Let's see. Can you turn off the lights there? And, and Richard, would you get the... Hey, got a pointer that works. All right, this first one, John 8, 32, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now I've got Jesus right in the center. Look at Jesus as the object of our faith. And he is the object of our faith. Uh, it's interesting because there are a lot of people that have faith, but not everybody has Jesus as the object of faith. And that gets you going down the wrong road to begin with because I can have faith in faith. Uh, when, when I was in another religion, I had faith in a guy they called Jesus, but he wasn't the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, and, and so the object of our faith is all important. It's all important that we come to an understanding and a knowledge of who this object of our faith is. Now, I want to take Jesus out of this for a minute so that I can under, so you can kind of grasp things uh, in, in a theoretical way. Uh, 
what I have here is I have like, it's, this is a cylinder. This is a simple object, right? I mean, we're going we're gonna to take this apart a little bit. I want you to bear with me. I know this is classroom time and all of that. But like if, if I were to show you a simple object, this is a cylinder, right? It's, it's flat on both ends and round and all of that. You can see, I mean, it tried my best to, to do a three-dimensional object there. But that's an object. All right, next slide. Now, let's say that I was able to shine a blue light. You see in the bottom of the frame there uh, on the left, there's a blue light shining up on this object. And then it shines against the wall. See, it's a blue spotlight. And so you have this blue circle of light with a dark center in it. That's a circle. All right? That's a subjective thing because if that blue light was representative of my biases, my opinions, all of that, then what I would see is not the object, but a subjective reality of that object. So if somebody asked me about that object, I'd say, well, it's a round circle with, you know, a blue light around it. A subjective perspective, the text on, on the left here, is based upon individual biases, interpretations, feelings, imaginings, and opinions. So, all right. That's how you would look at it if you looked at it from that point of view. You know, people talk about, well, my point of view. I, I'm always wary when somebody says, well, my God would not. And it's like, oh, here comes a subjective deal. Here comes somebody's opinion. And it may or may not be true. All right, next slide, please. All right, now an objective perspective is factual and is not influenced by individual biases, interpretations, feelings, imaginings, and opinions. It's not dependent on that. It's depending on the facts. So when we want to look at God, when we look at Jesus, we want to find out what are the facts? What is the objective reality about who he is? What is his character, his nature? Who is he? Now, let's say that I shined an orange light on that. See, coming from the right side of the frame on that object. And because it's flat on both ends, and you wouldn't see it if you took a, looked at a two-dimensional representation of it, you would see a square inside of an orange circle. It's the same object. So now we have two different views, two different truths, and I use the term loosely again, of the same thing. People get tied in knots over this stuff. This stuff is taught in universities. And they get tied in knots because they don't look at the object, they look at the subjective reality of it. And it, that's where you get messed up. So, next slide. Let's say I put two guys in a room. And neither one of them can see the object, but one of the guys can see what's on the, the wall on the left, and one of the guys can see what's on the wall on the right, and that's coming from two different points of view about the same object. But now, one of the guys is going to say, no, that thing is blue with a round circle. And the other one's going to say, it is not. It's orange with a square. And they're both basing this on their interpretation of that object. Does that make sense to you guys? Are you seeing what I'm, what I'm trying to get across here? Do you see where people get all tripped up? Especially when it comes to the things of God? I mean, this is goofy stuff, but it, I mean, this is the road to confusion for a lot of people. And when it comes to the things of God, remember, Jesus is the object of our faith. We don't see him. We don't see him physically, but 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It's not an empty faith. It's something that's solid. We weigh the reality of, of God, the reality of Christ, through what he says in his word and what he tells us by his spirit. That's how it works. So next slide. So in the final analysis, that subjective truth might be true and it might not be true on either side because it's dependent upon interpretation. All right? And it's dependent on people's biases. It's dependent on on people's own thoughts about the thing rather than the thing itself. So you have true and true, one side and the other, and there's a difference between what you perceive to be true and what is truth. All right? So when it comes to the things of God, we look at truth. We don't look at one person's thoughts about what's true and the other person's thoughts about what's true. That's where, again, where our society has run aground on this whole philosophical approach. And when it comes to, when, when you start talking to people about God, when you study the Bible, my prayer is that you'll come away from this looking at things more objectively and less subjectively because we all have opinions. We all have ideas. You know, uh, faith can have just a ton of, of objects and, and it's, really comes down to my perception of truth is not an absolute perception. Um, Let me give you an example. Uh, I'll use my wife. uh, I'm getting big eyes from the back of the room. Really? (laughs) My wife doesn't like the color orange. Now, I didn't find that out the first time I gave her flowers and they were orange. Um, And she was very gracious and loved them. (laughs) But she doesn't like the color orange. All right? So for her... I mean, there's the color orange, and I could look at something and say, well, that's orange. She might look at it subjectively and go, I don't like orange. Does that mean that orange is a bad color? No, it's a subjective opinion. It's, it's her own bias. And so orange isn't a bad color, and you guys are all thinking, oh, I'm never getting her orange. But <laughs> don't worry about that. But the point is, is, is that there's a, a, an objective reality. Orange is a color. I like orange. And my wife doesn't, that, it, that she doesn't, doesn't really change the fact as to whether or not it's orange. If I were to tell you, come out into the parking lot and look at my yellow Honda, and you go out in the back lot and you say, that's a silver Toyota, and I say, well, it's yellow to me, and I like Hondas. <laughs> it's my reality. It's my truth. I mean, I'm entitled. See how it revolves around me? And I'm giving you a subjective reality as opposed to an objective reality. You're answering me and saying, I'm looking at the object. I don't care about the subjective thing you're talking about, John. I'm looking at what I see in front of me, and that's a silver Toyota. I'm telling you, it's a silver Toyota. And I'm going, no, no, it's not. It's a Honda. And and we could go back and forth on that. And people get into fruitless arguments about God over things like that. Stay with the objective reality redirect conversations to the objective. Get away from the subjective. Go towards the objective because you will always come out on top. And I don't mean to win the argument. I mean to win the person. Next. All right, I'm going to give you another example here. And this time, now we're going to get into the spiritual realm. I have words and deeds on, on, on both of what I ha- where I had subjective uh, now, and so you see here with words, I have Hebrews 4 2. 
And, and what that says is, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. It's talking about the children of Israel out in the wilderness. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So I can look at God's words. And when I would go to the jail and do jail ministry, I would talk to guys that knew God's word very, very well. But there was no life in them. I mean, these guys could recite it. But it was not mixed with faith. And so they had their opinions about the Bible, their opinions about God. They had opinions about all kinds of things, but they were subjective opinions because they were not united by faith in those who heard. And we're looking in the Gospel of John here. And hopefully you've seen that the people, there's a whole pattern here where Jesus will say something and the people will interpret it. Well, you know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. It took 46 years to build this temple. He gives them an objective reality. They come back with a subjective interpretation. And, and, and it is on and on and on. You know, he gave us bread. And that, that actually gets more into the deed side. But it, hopefully you're tracking with what I'm talking about. We've got to stay on the objective side. So in, Hebrew, or in Acts chapter 2, when we look at deeds... Uh, Peter, standing up on the day of Pentecost, says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. He goes on and he preaches the gospel to them. How often did Jesus do something and the people would misinterpret it because they would go to a subjective conclusion about it? They're their view would fall short. He went out and he fed the people. And they went, great, this is a bread king. Remember we talked about that. This guy can feed us. And they came the next day looking for food over at Capernaum when they went across, remember he went across and all of that. I mean, they had a subjective idea of who he was based on what he had done. It never got fully developed. And so, again, People come up with conclusions about God based on an aspect of truth, but not understanding the object of truth. Do you understand? I mean, this is really important. I hope I'm getting this across clearly. We were at a men's conference yesterday, and, and the guy was sharing about people being really confused about their gender. And that's a big topic in the news these days. How many genders have been identified by these goofy people out there? I don't remember. I mean, there's a bunch. I, when I look at Genesis, it says, male and female, he created he them. And it's pretty easy to determine if somebody's a boy or somebody's a girl. That's an objective reality. But you have people walking around saying, I am a man trapped in a woman's body. Hog, wash. You're a man with delusional thoughts about sexuality and about your gender. That doesn't have anything to do with the reality that you're a man or you're a woman. Objective reality. It's based in fact. And when people depart from that, I'll tell you what, it's the same lie being packaged as what the enemy did back here. Uh, I'll give you guys some examples as we go along here uh, from John chapter 8. Here's an objective statement. Uh, 
Jesus says in verse 12, I'm the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Pretty simple. Verse 13, they answer him saying, you bear witness of yourself and your witness isn't true. What does that have to do with the reality of who he is, of what he just stated? Nothing. Objective, verse 32, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Subjective, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. That has nothing to do with the objective reality of what he just said. Do you understand? You see how this works? Objective, verses 39 to 41. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, and Abraham didn't do this. You do the deeds of your father. And we know he's not talking about Father God. Their response, subjective response, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. They answer him by accusing him. We'll get into that when we get into the text. Verse 47, he who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. Verse 48, their response to him, you're a Samaritan. What? What does that have to do with what he just said? They, and then they turned in the same sentence, they said, you also have a demon. So we have Jesus presenting truths, realities about himself, objectively, ones that are backed up by his character, his nature, his person, who he is. And we have the guys he's dealing with lowering that and coming up with their opinions about who he is, their opinions about how he's operating, their opinions about him because they wanted to kill him. That was the bias they were operating from. So when we're dealing with people out in the world, you guys, it's really, really important, really important that we identify subjective comments and objective comments. You don't have to remember this per se, but just try to keep it focused on the, on, on, on the person and the work of Jesus. As we, as we stay on that, as we major on the majors and not in the minors, because people will try to pull you off into all kinds of goofy conversations. I mean, we've talked about them before. I'm not going to belabor them. I want to cover some ground this morning. But really, when it comes to those kinds of things, it's really important that we stay centered in the objective reality of who Jesus is and that we avoid and the Bible warns us to avoid speculations. Those are subjective things. They are things that are parts of their, of their people's opinions. They're dri driven by perhaps some experience they had, perhaps some bad doctrine they've gotten a hold of, perhaps just because they don't want to believe. And very often that's the case. People just plain don't want to believe that Jesus is who he is and that he accomplished what he accomplished on your and my behalves. I'm going to look at a short video here. Are you ready with that, Richard? All right. Just a two-minute video that kind of drives it home. We live in a culture in which we don't make distinctions between objective truth claims and subjective truth claims. So it, I definitely have an opinion about my favorite dessert and I have an opinion about my favorite movie, but there are some things that really aren't based on my opinion at all. I can't change them. You know, the, do I have five fingers or do I have six? My opinion is not going to change that. Either I have the number I can count or I don't. 
This is an objective truth that's based on this object we call my hand, not on my personal opinion about my hand. So I think that that's a situation that we have to distinguish. Well, what are the claims about God, really? Are they just really an expression of our subjective opinions, like your favorite cookie or your favorite soda or your favorite movie? Because if that's the case, there's no point in us like getting all fussy about making a case for why I think Diet Coke is better than Diet Pepsi. But the issues related to God's existence are different because they aren't subjective claims. Our opinions can't change whether or not God exists. I can be wrong about God's existence, but my opinion can't change it. That's an objective claim about reality. And my subjective opinion has no... Now, then we have to ask the question, well, is Jesus this God? Do we think that Christianity is the true description of the God of the universe? Now, I can be wrong about this, but it's not a matter of my opinion. In the end, it either is or it isn't, and it's based not in Jim's opinion, but in the truth claim that's rooted in the object called Christianity. So it's an objective claim about God's nature, and it can be objectively false. It could also be objectively true. Good stuff. I, I just, um, as I was praying about this morning's message, I, I just felt strongly that we needed to stop and take a look at what is truth. I mean, the Greeks in Jesus's day in the first century, uh, uh, prior to the Romans coming in, the Greeks had had this whole big philosophical bent. I mean, there's still literature out there and all. Um, and and they were they were deeply into philosophy and they were deeply into trying to define truth and all of that. That's why Pilate, when Jesus is before him, and and, and he essentially makes the statement, "What is truth?" Because again, guys, the enemy wraps the same lie in a different package and delivers it to us. It's delivered to us in the package called postmodernism. All right, it's the same philosophical lie. It's trying to distort truth to the point where truth is no longer truth. And now we have every man doing what's right in his own eyes. Uh, just a, a tragic thing. And it's so rampant, so currently um, prominent in, in our, our cultural thought, our, uh, the, the way that our culture approaches things, that we, as the body of Christ, need to be informed. This isn't a philosophy lesson. This is so that we can understand how the enemy is accomplishing what he's trying to accomplish in the hearts and minds of people as he captivates their minds and confuses them over what is really truth. Truth is truth. And I mean, you strip everything away. That's what Jesus talked about. Jesus never said anything that wasn't truth. He's the embodiment of truth. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, he means he is the way, not a way, the truth, not a truth, not a subjective reality, and not a life, but the life. And the only way to God is through those specific claims. This is important stuff. John chapter 8. We left off in verse 12 last week. We've got 15 minutes and we'll get started now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this will be quick. We're not going to go very far this morning. I'll, uh, hopefully I'll get to verse 32 because this is, this is all building towards. 
but we left off last week with Jesus after dealing with a woman in adultery, standing there talking to the people in at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, and and all well, he's there the next morning in the treasury teaching. Uh, he says, "Oh, I'm sorry. This is not the yeah. All right. This is still the next morning." After the woman, he's still probably got the woman in his midst. Uh, and he says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, have the, but have the light of life. So, interesting. Uh, as we know, they had come to entrap him with the woman. And he essentially started writing on the ground and did all that. We don't, we're not going to go into that again. But we see here that he actually became, and we looked at it last week in detail, he became the light of the world for this woman. He brought spiritual light to her life, to her broken, messed up, screwed up, squandered life. And she ends up calling him Lord by the time they're finished there. Interesting, it, it, we talked about it's the second of the great I am sayings in the Gospel of John. There are a number more here in this chapter. Uh, verse 24, he says, unless you believe that I am, it says I am he, but the he is in italics. That means it was added for clarification. And actually, I think it muddies it up. Is he believes, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Uh, verse 58, uh, the chapter ends with Jesus making the profound statement, before Abraham was, I am, setting his eternal nature. So light had come now to Israel, no longer through prophets uh, or through the commentary of the people, through God's word. But now light was coming through a person. Jesus didn't say, I carry a light. He said, I am the light of the world. Uh, and it's not a physical life, light, because we see in the Gospels that blind men believe. We talked about that. So when he talks about the world, again, we talked about that last week. Uh, scores of mentions of the world in the Gospel of John, far more than the composite of the other three Gospels. Um, making reference to humanity. Humanity in general is the world. Uh, lost humanity specifically. Verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself and your witness is not true. Now, they're, what they're referring to is in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Uh, uh, in the law, it said that you cannot take somebody's testimony based on one person that it has to be on the testimony of two or three witnesses to be able to make a thing, to be able to put that claim forward. So, and Jesus in, in John chapter five, remember we looked at that, he said, if, if I bear witness of myself, my witness isn't true. And again, he was being consistent with fulfilling the law of Moses and saying, I'm not doing this on my own. So, and if you think about it, light doesn't need any introduction. I was thinking about that. Um, when we had the lights off a few minutes ago with a projector going, I mean, you don't need anybody to tell you that the lights just came on. They just came on and you knew. And so, again, when Jesus comes and he came to these people, he came with light. And that light, it tells us earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, that men didn't like it. Their deeds were evil. They loved darkness more than they loved light. And they just were put off. And Jesus didn't have to come and say, hey, I'm the light. He just was light. And that light still repulses people who don't like light. 
Verse 14, so John answered and he said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. So he says, even if, he's not saying I am doing that. He says, even if I were, my witness is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I've come from and where I'm going. And he says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true for I'm not alone. But I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Again, Deuteronomy. So things are heating up with these guys. And he's saying, there's two of us. My Father bears witness of me, and I bear witness. And so the two of us are essentially fulfilling that aspect of the law. He says, I am one who bears witness of myself. The Father who sent me bears witness of me, in verse 18. And they said to him, where is your Father? Remember that subjective objective thing we just looked at yeah it's a good example uh and, and they hint at his illegitimacy it, it, and, and further on in, in in the chapter in verse 41 they say we weren't born of fornication but well when they say where's your father jesus and his mother both had carried a reproach all their lives because mary was pregnant out of wedlock remember and people did not believe that. They, and and Jesus, Joseph hid her. He did the honorable thing and, and all. But they had carried that reproach because the human conclusion about that wasn't that, gee, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived and bore a child and all that, as we know the Bible tells us and teaches us. And that's true. The virgin birth is a foundational doctrine and a foundational truth in Christianity. It is an objective truth. It's something that we absolutely adhere to. And yet... These guys didn't believe it. As a matter of fact, the Talmud, which came hundreds of years after Christ, but the Jewish Talmud states that Jesus is the son of an illegit the illegitimate son of Mary. I mean, it actually states that. So they're hinting at it here when they say, you know, who's your father? Um, and they'll get pretty hammered down as they go along. Remember we talked last week, this is a heated debate. This is a heated conversation. Jesus is, he he returns everything they have to say with truth and they don't like it and they have their own agenda. They have their own biases and their own opinions and their own deal. They want to, they want to get rid of this guy. He is just totally messing up our gig and, and, and they couldn't do it fast enough in their own mind. Verse 19, uh, and Jesus answered and he says, you neither knew me or you know, neither me or my father. If you'd known me, you'd have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Again, I love that, that uh, just like in Nazareth, we looked at that, uh, and then earlier in chapter 7, he just walks right through the crowd. They're not going to be able to lay hands on him because he's not ready to have them lay hands. He, I, I marvel at that. He knew, none of this happened by accident. He knew when his hour would come, and he did know when his hour had come. And until then, nobody could do anything to change that. And they could, they could send police. Remember, they sent the cops. They sent you know, the, the officers. They could hatch these plans. They could march him up, and he let them. Remember in Nazareth? I was thinking about that, too. We talked about that recently, that after he fulfilled there in Luke chapter um, for uh, 18, I think it is, where he says, you know, today the scripture is fulfilled in your presence in the synagogue there in Nazareth, and everybody flipped out. They actually, when they 
pushed him up to the brow of the hill. They, were, they wanted to throw him, they wanted to stone him, but actually use his body against the stones, not the other way around. But you know, they, and he let them drive him to the brow of the hill. Think about it. And isn't that remarkable? And then he just walks right through him. I don't know how he walked right through him, but he walked right through him. Uh, anyway, I, I head trip on stuff like that. I just think it's cool. So his hour hadn't come. Uh, another side note here. During the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, some of the commentators talk about the menorah, you know, the big, huge menorah that they have. Uh, and Stacy and I saw that when we were in Israel. There's this enormous golden menorah that they, they moved around to different parts of the city. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles, remember, the Tabernacles was remembering the wilderness wanderings and, and uh, the, the, the pillar of light, that uh, pillar of fire that God used to light their way by night. Uh, and they used this brass menorah. Uh, and some say that they actually brought that menorah into the, uh, the court of the women in the temple uh, during those celebrations, the, the tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacle celebrations as a representation of the, the light. And so it would be a, a real easy conclusion for the people to look at that. And then Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. See that? No, no, I'm the ful- fulfillment of that. Anyway, uh, just a side note. Um, verse 21, then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me. And first time he says, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So I can kind of sit here calmly and read this, but I would imagine that it was getting pretty heated by this point. He's essentially saying, I have bad news for you. You can't come because you don't believe. And because you don't believe, you will die in your sins. Contrasted to this woman. Interesting, you had all these religious guys, you know, the guys with the robes and the whole pomp and ceremony and all that. All these guys, and you have this woman who was looked at really kind of the lowest part of their society, this adulterous woman, perhaps a prostitute, whatever. But, you know, she's the one that leaves justified. And these guys leave condemned. It's just like how the Lord does it, isn't it? Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you can't come? What, is he going to commit suicide? They are totally not getting it. It, it, It's Again, when we speak spiritual things, they're spiritually discerned. And unless somebody has been given ears to hear and eyes to see and has a heart that wants to understand, they're not going to get it. The Holy Spirit is very good at getting people's attention to convict them concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's the work that Jesus is doing with these guys. They don't have the Holy Spirit. But, you know, I still believe he's operating in love here, that he is wanting to get their attention. He wants to turn them. And they're not willing. Verse 23, he says to them, You're from beneath, and I'm from above. You're of this world, and I'm not of this world. I just imagine him saying these things, that people looking at each other like, what on earth is he talking about? He's, now he's, he was talking about suicide. Now, I'm not of this world. He, but, you know, uh, and being perplexed. Therefore, I said to you, verse 24, second time, you will die in your sins. He wants to, it's like, let me slow down and say this to you another way. <laughs> You're going to die in your sins unless you believe, unless you come to faith in me, unless you come to trust the things that I'm doing actually have weight and are important. Stop hitting me with the subjective stuff. And I know I'm, I'm paraphrasing a lot here, but the point is, is like he's, 
he's getting up into their face now because he wants to communicate this stuff to them in a way that they will finally respond and respond rightly. But he knows that they are not going to, and so therefore he is absolutely standing on the fact, you will die in your sins because you are rejecting me. Verse 24 again, Therefore I said to you that you'll die in your sins if you don't believe that I am. You'll die in your sins. It says it a second, third time. Interesting, it says uh, in verse 30 that many would believe in him because of these things that he's saying. And then he said to them, they said to him, Who are you? <laughs> and Jesus said to them, Just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. There's that word. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Not just Israel. Note that. Verse 27, they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Now John inserts this because he wants us to understand that they were not getting what he was saying. Verse 28, and Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am. He, again, it's in italics, it shouldn't be there. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And as he who, who sent me is with me, and the Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. I'd love to be able to say that. I always do that. Now, if I said that to you guys, you'd probably want to find another church. But, I mean, that would be an arrogant thing to say. But, but the point I'm making is that Jesus, I mean, he said, I always do the things that please him. When he told the woman, go and sin no more, that pleased the Father. When he tells these guys, you're going to die in your sins, that pleased the Father. He always did the things he was... <laughs> He had such great impact. He had such presence that he could say these things with a commanding authority. Um, I, I'm not going to go. I was going to rabbit trail, but we're out of time. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide or continue in me, in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Verse 32, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Turn that inside out. He's essentially telling these people you're living a lie. And if you keep going the direction you're going, you'll die in your sins. It's a very simple choice. I mean, you strip away all of the stuff. You strip away all of the subjective stuff. There's an objective reality to all of this. You either believe him, and your life shows that. I mean, I totally believe that when we truly believe, our life does show that. Or, you die in your sins. I, I, there's no simpler way to put it. And he's being very plain with these people. And I believe that when God's word is direct, that we do well to, to take it as being direct. And I'm not, I, I'm not implicating anybody in this room. I'm just saying that as we're dealing with people out there in the world, there comes a place where you share hard realities with people. There comes a place where you love them enough to say, look, you either get on board, what it was the old saying, get right or get left. You know, you get on board with Jesus' program or you will die. 
I remember looking at my next door neighbor one time on our property in California. I was out working in the, um, we have sort of a field in front and back of the house. We're out working in the front field and, and looking across and seeing Ramon, the guy, uh, my neighbor, and just thinking, he's going to die. It, it just struck me. Like, like, as though he was terminally ill, because he is, in a spiritual sense, he is very terminally ill if he doesn't give his life to Christ. And it, it, just that burden for him. Do you, and, and wrapping up, just want to leave you with this. Do you have a burden for the lost? Does, do, do, do these things impact you in such a way that, that you say, Lord, would you use me with that person or with this person? Would you... Have me come alongside. And yes, it is absolutely wonderful and correct and right to tell people about how much God loves them. But you're not sharing the whole gospel if they don't see what's at stake. If they don't see that, that it's life and death. You either are born once and you're born again. Or you're born once and you die the second death. And the second death, the great white throne of judgment, nobody wants to be at. So... As we, as we consider these things here, as we consider truth, Jesus is giving some hard truths to these guys. And they're hard truths for us to be able to take in ourselves. And again, not questioning anybody's salvation here. I mean, do business with him if there's a question mark in that area. Absolutely. But what is your burden like for those who don't know him? I mean, look around. There's a few of us here in this room there, I mean, and we praise God that, that we have one another. We have this family. But are we so inwardly focused that we've become maybe dull in being outwardly focused, in being evangelical in that sense, and saying, you know, God has given each of us. And, and don't get me wrong. I understand what people mean when they say this, when they say, well, I believe that God's given me a ministry to the body of Christ. That's great. I think that's wonderful. And when I hear people say that, great, right on. That doesn't excuse the fact that all of us have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And that's universal. It's called the Great Commission. He gave the Great Commission to everybody. And that Great Commission is go and make me known in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So how's that going? I, I just want to challenge you because this is not an idle thing. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Just take it to heart. Don't get under con condemnation, get all weirded out about it. But just take these things to heart and say, Lord, is there a greater measure and greater effectiveness I can have in my own life of my witness for you? And, and whether that's verbally or it's simply living the life and allowing people to see, there is a point of delivering these truths to those that we love, those that are within our sphere of influence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this brief look at truth, Lord. How important it is that we walk in the truth, that, that we see that you sent your son to be the embodiment of truth, to, to not just deliver truth to us, but to live truth, to, to look to him and to see that he is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, I pray you would just burden us with a divine burden, not, not a heavy load, Lord, but, but a divine burden for those around us that don't know you, that in this postmodern world that we live in with all of the lies about who you are, that we could simply be a light, uh, bringing divine truth to people who you love, who you would want to bring your light to. So help us to be sensitive to that. Pray that you'd go before us the rest of this day, that you would 
by your Holy Spirit, grant us the ability, Lord, to see the things that you want to accomplish in us and through us. Pray for the potluck, keep the food safe, and that it would be a, just a great time of fellowship between us. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you guys.